Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name's Tanner, and I'll be one of your hosts today. I'll be joined very shortly by Taylor. First, we do have a new patron to thank. I uh, just want to say thank you to Fable for joining us on Patreon. We hope you enjoy all the bonus back catalog episodes, and we've got some more cool stuff coming up very, very soon. So with that, let's bring in Taylor. How's it going? Pretty good. It is nice to be here on a Sunday morning doing this. Excited for this episode. I know we were kind of talking about it before we started recording. This is it's kind of the this is the moneymaker episode right here of this uh this series. So Yeah. You know, for anyone tuning into our part one of the Essex, which you should have by this point, if that was your first series you've listened to, you might be surprised to have heard that there was almost nothing about the whaleship Essex in part one. That's how we like to do it uh on this show. That's what we did with the Spanish Armada, and we're doing it again here. So this episode we finally get into the ship herself, the crew and the very, very famous story of her sinking. But first, what else have you been up to recently? Even more college football. Um, that's just not that. That's just going to be a constant one for the next, you know, few months. Um, also excited for NFL. It's, uh, that is today. We're recording on the first Sunday of the uh, NFL kickoff. So very excited for that. Um, other than that, um, I've been watching the proper people YouTube channel again. Um, they do a lot of like urban exploration, a lot of like, they explore like abandoned places and I love it because it's basically ghost adventures, but like without the lame spooky stuff, like it's perfect. They just walk around old creepy abandoned places, but like they don't jump at every little sound. They're not there to be scared. So it's, it's really cool. Like the, um, some of the ones I've been watching lately have been a lot of malls and it's really interesting seeing some of these malls that shut down in like 2019 and how quickly they look like very dystopian. You know what I mean? Like everything is rotted and there's, you know, mold growing everywhere. Like it, it's pretty amazing how quickly some of these buildings turn, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. It's cool. They, they do quite a variety of places. So I've had a lot of fun watching those. That's cool. Um, it reminds me a bit of that show Life After People. I think it was on the History Channel. Yeah, um, that's exactly. But kind of on a smaller it. scale, and you kind of realize mm-hmm. how quickly these places actually do descend into mm-hmm. something that looks, you know, unlivable and, and you know, barely even human constructed. Yeah, yeah, and it's weird that a lot of the newer places they go look worse than some of the older places because you know when they go to a power plant that was built in the 1920s, everything in that place is you know, granite and marble and all this stuff. So it's interesting. It's just cool. Anytime you can see something you're not supposed to see, I think that's the appeal, right? Right. Of of those kind of channels. So it's cool. It's definitely worth a look there. Usually like 30, 40 minutes. So it's like the perfect like wind down after work kind of thing. What about you? I have been reading almost exclusively stuff for these episodes. (laughs) This is like the Lusitania all over again very focused and some for this one. And then also planning ahead for the next episode of this and also the bonus episode, the bonus episode is actually going to be really interesting looking at some of the ways that Nantucket tried to get around and, and recover from the wartime depredations they had suffered. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about 
communities of Nantucketers being transplanted all the way to Wales. Interesting. Whaling in Wales. Yeah. Yeah. There's some really interesting writing about uh, some of these families that decided to, you know, rather than risk what's going to happen if another war breaks out, that's going to kill Nantucket. Uh, Let's just go somewhere else and operate from there. Um, So talking about some of the British uh, whaling companies also, the British whaling industry. Uh, Yeah, a lot of cool stuff to look at in the bonus episode that we'll do. Awesome. So quick review here. In part one, we covered the background of the story of the whale ship Essex, including the whaling community of Nantucket, the history of the whaling industry as a whole. Uh, We saw the progression of American whaling from the early focus on drift whales, so dead whales that drift ashore, to the emphasis on bowhead and right whales, and ultimately to the deep sea hunting for the sperm whale with its higher quality oil, spermaceti, and immensely valuable ambergris. So the story today is going to take us all the way from our little old island of Nantucket out to the vast expanse of the Pacific Ocean. And the main narrator of the story, as with most stories of the Essex, is going to be Owen Chase, the first mate on the Essex, uh, who provided the longest and most detailed firsthand account of the sinking. Mm -hmm. As we're going through this, I'll be picturing all these people as the people who play them in the movie. Uh, So if you want to do the same, Owen Chase is played by one of the Hemsworths. That's all you need. I've got to double check which one. It's a Hemsworth. Um, I think it's, I think it's Chris. Yes, he's played by Chris Hemsworth. In a fight between the Hemsworth family and the Skarsgård family. I'm team Skarsgård, right? Like, are you, you going that way? Are any of the Hemsworths really old? Because I feel like Stellan Skarsgård is going to maybe lower the effectiveness of the Skarsgårds. <laughs> um, I mean, they could still fight like the Hemsworth dad. Like he has to exist, right? One would assume. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it work. We'll, we'll, we'll match them up. So, yeah, that's who you can picture as Owen Chase if you want to. Uh, so we talked in part one about the importance in the Nantucket community of your name and pedigree. And the Chase family was well-established on the island and in the whaling trade. Uh, So quoting here from Thomas Farrell Heffernan's Stove by a Whale. The islanders spoke of the thousand Dunhams and the thousand Chases, quite a tribute when coming from a coffin or a Folger, whose own families seem to have been granted the stellar multiplicity promised to Abraham and his descendants. So that quote from Heffernan hints at this, but despite the Chase family's prominence, they were still on kind of that second tier in terms of prestige on the island. It is interesting how there's almost like a caste system in place. Yeah. And how, you know, even with, you know, similar experience, um, similar accomplishments, that is something that kind of tips the scales. You know, if you are one of these a coffin or a Starbuck or a Folger, that's instantly going to give you an upper hand. Uh, in any situation like that. Yeah. And like, I'm sure anyone like is living in a small town right now is probably yelling. Like it's still the same way. Cause like it kind of is, I feel like in smaller towns, like there's a list of like eight last names. And if you're not one of them, like you're definitely on the outside. And then of those eight last names, like three of them are like the fancy ones. Yeah. So like, yeah, it definitely still exists obviously to a much lesser, like, you know, degree. So a 1763 list of Nantucket whaling captains included 75 individuals coming from 28 families. 
So numbers wise, basically, if you're a captain in the fleet, you've got a brother or a cousin or an uncle who's also a captain. Um, yeah, it definitely seems like an industry that um, once you're in, like you don't escape it. And even ones who aren't captains yet are on board. Uh, so if uh-huh. you're if you're a coffin, you know, you've probably got a, a nephew who's a boat steerer, maybe another one who is, you know, a, a green hand. You've got all kinds of family members in this business. Mm-hmm. Among those that list, it's a good number of coffins, Folgers and Starbucks. Now, what's interesting here, you hear the name Folger, you hear the name Starbuck and you think mm-hmm. coffee. Yeah, uh, right. Now I can say the Starbuck is has nothing to do with the company Starbucks. <laughs> I think there's definitely like some nautical themes in Starbucks with like the mermaid and everything too. So, however, the Folger name is actually connected to the Folger Coffee Company uh, because James Folger, who is the original Folger from Folgers, he was born in Nantucket and he moved to San Francisco at age 15 during the gold rush and then ultimately got into coffee and became the Folgers company that we know. So, I thought that was interesting. Uh, that actually is connected to that Folger. So we can link from Charlie Manson to Nantucket Whaling. Is there a Manson connection to the Folgers company? There is a Manson connection to a Folger. Um, I believe one of the women killed there at the Tate murders was a Folger. Yep. Abigail and Folger. So, yeah, I guess we can make that connection. That'll be true crime corner for this day. That is the end of that. Uh, so Heffernan lists the chases among a second later tier of names to gain recognition on the island, uh, along with the Joys and the Rays, uh, both of whom will also have members aboard the Essex. You're not going to see that Joy Boy again. Probably not, um, <laughs> which is sad because he's played by Killian Murphy in the movie. <laughs> I have not seen that movie yet, but I will say I don't know how they got all those people to do that movie. It's a really excellent it, cast. It's, like the cast sounds awesome. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely talk about that when we cover the movie, but it's got a wonderful cast. If you just like movie dudes from movies, that's a great movie. It's got all the dudes in it. <laughs> Most of the Nantucket chases descended from two brothers who originally settled in New Hampshire, uh, with the line going down through a Lieutenant Isaac Chase, who was from Martha's Vineyard. Owen Chase, who was born in 1796, he wasn't actually a member of this branch. He instead appears to be descended from the branch of chases from Yarmouth on Cape Cod. The records of his father Judah's birth are kind of contradictory, with some indicating he was born on the island and some showing he was born off of it. As we've seen, this is a big deal. Not just you, but also like your parents or your parents, Nantucketers, because all of this counts in the, you know, like you said, this caste system. Judah Chase married Phoebe Meter, who is a distant cousin of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, which actually makes Owen Chase a first cousin four times removed of Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> it's amazing what a uh, small and related world it was back then. I believe uh, Franklin's mother had been a, a Folger, I want to say. Another thing that distinguished Judah from the majority of the Nantucket chases is that Judah wasn't a whaler. Uh, he was actually a farmer, which is a relatively small profession on the island it's not really a farming community there's not a lot of arable land i I was about to say like figuratively and literally like small because yeah there is just nowhere to do that the soil's not great for farming uh so judah's trade aside all of his sons that survived to adulthood uh went on to whaling ships um and all five would become captains 
including Owen, but we'll talk about that more in part three. Is a lot of that just that's what's available? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's it's dependable. You know that it will be a a needed job. That's always interesting when you look back when things are very regionalized like this. It's like, well, how come like everyone in northern Wisconsin got into the lumber trade? But like when you're 19 years old and need a job, like that's the only job. Like a lot of these guys probably didn't intend or want to get into this, but like you got bills, right? Like that's never changed. Especially when it's a resource like lumber or sperm whales that at the time seems like will be there forever and it's never going to run out and will always be needed in this profession. Yeah. Like this is no different than signing up to do DoorDash. Like no one wants to do that, but you got got to work, right? Yeah. Now we trade our time. So we don't seem to know when Owen went on his first whaling trip. We know that one of his early voyages, maybe his second or third, saw him on board the Essex that he'd become so tightly linked with in history. This was in June of 1817, with Chase serving as boat steerer under Captain Daniel Russell. The fact that he serves as boat steerer, which is also the harpooner Mm -hmm. on a whaleboat, indicates that that is definitely not his first voyage. It's not a job you would get your first time out. Since you're the guy who needs to make the first initial strike on the whale, you need someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, that's the guy that's literally making or breaking your pocketbook at the end of the day, I suppose. On that voyage, the first mate was George Pollard Jr., Mm. who if you've read anything about the Essex, you know George Pollard. Uh, We'll see him later. Sure do. So let's talk about the Essex. She was built in 1799, so she'd been sailing for... 20 years when she left Nantucket for our story in August of 1819. And when the Essex left, uh, everyone knew that she's going to be gone for a long time. Once the sperm whale became the main target of these whaling vessels, the crews had to search further and further afield, you know, than just the eastern seaboard of North America. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got a lot of people out hunting for these things. You very quickly deplete any population that's there. I think that's something, you know, reading a lot of the stuff that I was struck by was like everyone going into this just knows they're going to be gone for like three years. That's just a long time to like leave your family and everything. And everyone, there's really no communication, no, Mm -hmm. you know, meaningful instant communication or anything. It's very weird to think about. Yeah. The number of these captains who have children born while they're away, just because, you know, they're, they're gone for so long, they come back and they have, you know, a two year old child that they've never met before. Um, (laughs) And it also just interesting things to the some of the gender politics of Nantucket in that with all these husbands gone, the wives really do have to run things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked a bit about Quaker ideas of gender equality, at least, you know, in a in a preaching sense. But you see it also here, you know, because you you don't have these heads of household that would traditionally be there. Uh, You don't have them present. It's really an interesting setup that this island has, you know, being so entirely bound to the whaling industry. Mm -hmm. So uh, sperm whales, they inhabit deeper parts of the ocean than the pilot or the right whales or the bowheads that were being hunted previously. And as those whaling grounds became depleted, you had to find new and more distant ones to satisfy the demand. This led to longer voyages. Longer voyages inevitably led to spoilage of the product with the greater distances between hunting grounds and port. Uh, That's losing profit. No one wants that. No, that would be bad. You're losing money. So they try to think of solutions to this. Uh, So rather than relying just on the triworks in port, 
Uh, some whaling vessels carried portable triworks that could be constructed ashore, used, and then taken down again. Triworks, we're talking about the the apparatus that you'd use to process, uh, basically mm-hmm. just boiling down this blubber into oil. That is interesting that, like, even at this time, there's the idea of, like, mobile processing. So people try this out, and it works relatively well. Uh, it's still, it's it's a hassle. You know, you're you're in the middle of the hunt. You've got to stop, go ashore do all this stuff, get back on and go hunting again. So they think there's got to be a better way. Yeah, like that's I guess this is like the early version of like the factory ships like we've talked about. That's that's exactly the transition we're going to see here. Quoting here from Leviathan by Eric J. Dolan. By the middle of the 18th century, colonial whalemen were more adept at finding and killing whales than they were at processing them. Both of the alternatives for obtaining oil, rendering blubber at home port, or using portable triworks during voyages worked, but neither was particularly efficient. Colonial whalemen began to ask how the efficiency of their operations might be improved. The answer they came up with was so simple and clean that it's surprising they had not thought of it earlier. Why not install the triworks on the whaling vessels? with the iron pots and brickline furnaces built into the center of the main deck, thereby transforming the vehicles into floating factories, capable of cutting in, rendering, and storing whale oil all in one place. Uh, to answer the question of why not install the triworks on the whaling vessels, many people at the time would have said, because you don't want a big fire on the middle of your ship. I mean, sign me up. I could I could have that concern, I think, potentially. Like, big wooden ship, lots of oil, fire. This was a legitimate concern for this. Um, Lack of OSHA laws. Maybe people had thought of it before, but thought, eh, no, we don't, we don't want to try that. But ultimately, there's always going to be that balance between safety and making money. And so I said, why not try this out? We can try to do this as safely as possible. So ultimately, those benefits of efficiency won out uh, over safety concerns. By the time of that Owen Chase is out whaling, a whaleman's not just a hunter or a mm-hmm. a monster slayer. Uh, he's he's a person who's got familiarity with every stage of production. These are being taken from live in the wild to barrels of oil to sell at market all on this ship, which is a very modern idea for something that's happening, you know, in 1820 uh, and earlier. It's interesting how you see the job change and I think you see this with a lot of jobs nowadays is that innovation doesn't make the job easier. It just lets you have one person do more job functions. Right. We live in that world nowadays where rather than Excel making your job easier, it's like, oh, no, here's more reports. Here's more things. You're mm-hmm. going to do this person's work now. So, and, and like you're seeing it here, too, that, it, yeah, it's not good enough just to go kill the whale. Like now you're going to process the whale. Thanks. Yeah. And you talk about like personal burden. This is adding here. It's like, you know, hunting the whale, of course, is dangerous, but operating these triworks is is not particularly safe either. So you're adding that extra layer of risk to an already really dangerous job. I have to wonder, too, knowing how these things work, that there's probably a little bit of prestige in hunting the whale, not so much in processing the whale. Right. So how many guys are like, that's beneath me. I don't do that. That's an unskilled <laughs> job. I'm a whale hunter. I don't I don't process the whale. I'm not a whale boiler. I mean, in my own line of work, 
you want to upset a truck driver, tell him that he has to get on a forklift and unload a truck. Like I that, imagine, you yeah. know, it's it's the same type of thing that, you know, I've worked hard to be in a position where I don't have to do that is going to be their response. So mm-hmm. it, uh, that had to be an interesting transition. So let's take a look at the whalers who were on the Essex at the time of our tale. We've already mentioned that Chase uh, served as first mate on this voyage. Um, despite the fact that he really did have the experience typically required to be a captain, this is typically, you know, as few as two voyages really set you up as a veteran whaler because you were out for so long and you processed so many whales in this even even one voyage you know after that you're saying you you know what you're doing you've done this you know by this point dozens of times um, hundreds of times by this point he had that experience he did have the name he was an Nantucketer so he by all rights you know especially from his perspective saying he should be a captain by now it is really crazy that like a 21 22 years old you can feel like you're getting passed over for something. And actually, part of that is something we've talked about before with the nature of labor. Like so many times in maritime history, you have a lot more qualified candidates than you have spaces to put them in. So you're going to have people push down mm-hmm. the ladder lower than they feel they should be just because someone else has more experience or, you know, in some cases, yeah, their name. But still, there's just not enough spots for everyone. This is actually at a time in history where Nantucket's on the way down. Mm-hmm. This is right around the time when New Bedford is passing Nantucket as the premier whaling place. And one of the reasons for that, as these, you know, you have these things like these triworks being put on ships, it makes these voyages so long. The ships need to be bigger, they need to be heavier. Nantucket has a very shallow bar running across the entrance to the harbor. Mm-hmm. And that's that's like at worst an inconvenience up to this point. The ships aren't really that big. They can clear it. But now that these ships are getting so massive, a lot of them can't get into the harbor. So it becomes much, much easier to go to a deeper water port like New Bedford. Mm -hmm. So kind of ironically, the thing that makes whaling more efficient and more profitable is ultimately the thing that kills Nantucket as a whaling center. It's it's a very interesting double-edged sword there. Talking about Chase, um, Russell got that promotion to captain a brand new vessel, the Aurora, uh, because he had done so well. The owners said, hey, we will give you our brand new ship. Uh, With Russell gone, that moves first mate George Pollard up. Pollard at this point is age 28, so he becomes the captain and 21 year old Owen Chase comes in as the first mate. Second mate on the voyage was Matthew Joy, age 26, played by Killian Murphy in the movie. He was a Quaker who'd been disowned by the Society of Friends for uh, marrying out, is the term, to a Congregationalist, Nancy Slade, in 1817. <laughs> How dare he? Well, yeah, and, and that's one of those like heavy words you hear, disowned. And like, yeah, it it was kind of a serious thing. But at the same time, it was also very like protocol based. It was just something that happened. It was nothing personal. You know, it's not you. It's just, hey, you made this decision. You are no longer really a Quaker if you've married someone who isn't. You know, for all we we talked about the progressiveness of the Quakers, and, and you can look back in history and pick out the aspects of Quakerism that you know, seem this, this bright, shining torch of liberalism in a darkened era. But there's also things like this, you know, like any any religious group, any society, really, you go back 200 years ago, there's going to be stuff that is off-putting and unsettling. <laughs> right. Right. 
And this is one of them. You know, you were no longer considered part of the Quaker community if you married someone who wasn't. We'll actually talk more about that in the bonus episode because the Quaker communities have a problem because they keep losing members. <laughs> that's not a great way to grow your community. Yeah, that's like anytime, like you said, anytime you go back and, and look at things like that, it's like even some of these abolitionists and stuff, when you start reading their thoughts on African-American people, you're like, oh, oh, that's not good. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it, it is all to an extent, it's all relative. I think there's there's certain things that you can say there was. People always knew that these these were bad things, but but yeah, it's also you, you your expectations can't be too high when you're going this far into the past. Right. So uh, other Nantucketers aboard were Obed Hendricks, Owen Coffin, who's a first cousin of Captain Pollard. Their mothers were sisters. Charles Ramsdale, Barzillai Ray, Benjamin Lawrence. And Thomas Nickerson. Uh, Nickerson wasn't born technically on Nantucket, uh, but he'd lived there since uh, the age of six months. And then he was orphaned not long after that. I believe he'd lived with his grandparents on Nantucket. God, imagine being the bottom guy in the Nantucketer tier just because you were only six months old when you moved there. He's basically a Nantucketer. Uh, so the next tier down on the ship was the White Off Islanders. So mostly meaning from Cape Cod. Uh, these were Seth Weeks and William Wright, both from Barnstable, Massachusetts, Isaac Cole from Rochester, Massachusetts, Thomas Chapel, who was actually from Plymouth, England. Interesting. And Joseph West, whose birthplace is not recorded. And the third main group on the vessel was the Black Sailors, most of whom were recruited from Boston. These were Richard Peterson from New York State, and he's the only one for whom a birthplace is recorded. Uh, Samuel Reed, William Bond, Isaiah Shepard, Charles Shorter, Lawson Thomas, and Henry DeWitt. Whaling ships were actually relatively diverse places for the time. You know, the early days of whaling, the crew had mostly been made up of local Native Americans. But as that population dwindled and basically disappears from Nantucket, the islanders sought to replace that with uh, looking to the black population. Nantucket did not really have much of a black population, but close by places like Boston did. Mm -hmm. In part three, we'll talk more about the possible role that race played um, or, you know, potentially yeah, played in the story after the sinking. There's a very interesting case to be made there for sure. Looking at other stories of survival cannibalism. Um, I know in Casting Lots, this was a topic that came up a, a few times, um, the podcast Casting Lots, the sort of race politics behind decisions made during moments of survival cannibalism. So despite the preference for white crew and specifically those from Nantucket, black whalers did receive equal pay based on their rank compared to their white counterparts. This really was a job where you can't afford to have someone slacking on their job. So you're going to pay everyone, you know, what, what they deserve. I think you probably see some similarities here. You know, we've discussed it with um, submarine like crews, how, you know, level things tend to be on submarines that there's not as much separation between officer and enlisted and that kind of thing. And it tends to be more informal. And I feel like you have some of that at play here too, that there's going to be a minimum in which everyone kind of has like a standard. And yeah, if you're part of the Nantucketers, like you might have things a little bit better, maybe a little extra food or something like that, but mm -hmm. they're not taking away from anyone either necessarily. We'll also see once we get to the hunting aspects, this is a situation where the mates and the captain are putting themselves in just as much personal uh, danger 
as anyone on the crew because they're typically the mm-hmm. one who is involved in in the killing of the whale and they're out in the boats with everyone else yeah i think there's a lot of similarities here um between like the sub crews and and whaling crews and that yeah it is very equal danger equal responsibility also as we talked about the spanish armada contrasting the an english vessel with a spanish one where the spanish vessel was so stratified between not just nobles and commoners but between army personnel and sailors so he has this very stratified situation compared to the english vessels which was not fully egalitarian obviously but much more so a a much more equal experience for regardless of who you are ages on the crew of the essex range from the youngest the cabin boy thomas nickerson at age 14 up to richard peterson the oldest at age 60 some of the men had experienced whaling but as a first-time captain pollard was getting for the most part only men who weren't wanted by other senior captains. That's so interesting too, like learning how that works. Like it's almost like a draft process. And this will be repeated when they're choosing the men for the whale boats. And like, that makes sense though, that, you know, if you're a able bodied guy, like, and you're only going to get paid for what you kill. Like if you got a guy that this is his fifth voyage and this is, you know, his last time he needs one big haul. Like you want that guy. That's who you want to go with. So this lack of experience becomes evident almost immediately on leaving ports. With most of the town on hand to watch, the Essex set sail on the morning of August 12th, 1819. Uh, And it took this inexperienced crew quite a long time to get all the sails properly set. And not unexpected for for a ship like this. A, A lot of whalers were setting out with a lot of, if not a majority of, you know, first time or very inexperienced crew. But this does give Owen Chase the opportunity to really jump into action into his role of first mate, a personality that even his friends and acquaintances might not have been familiar with yet. Uh, so quoting from Phil Brick in, in The Heart of the Sea. The mate of a Nantucket whale ship routinely underwent an almost Jekyll and Hyde transformation when he left his home island. Stepping out of his mild Quaker skin to become a vociferous martinet. And so Nickerson saw Owen Chase change from a perfectly reasonable young man with a new wife named Peggy to a bully (laughs) who had no qualms about using force to obtain obedience and who swore in a manner that shocked these boys who'd been brought up, for the most part, by their mothers and grandmothers. Although but a few hours before I had been so eager to go on this voyage, Nickerson remembered, there now seemed a sudden gloom to spread over me. A not very pleasing prospect was truly before me, that of a long voyage and a hard overseer. This to a boy of my years, who had never been used to hearing such language or threats before. Pretty jarring experience, and I think it's probably one that you probably know people like this, where you you know them in a certain context, and then you see them in maybe when they're at work, or when they're in a different social setting, and they're very much a different person. Hmm. I mean, I think everyone has that. I mean, I think I'm sure at times your teaching self is very different than your personal life self. And I, I know mine is like, I deal in a fairly high stress job. And you know, there's not always time for pleasantries and things mm-hmm. like that. Sometimes work has to get done. So yeah, I think a lot of people see this. And I think what I think is interesting, what they kind of allude to here is that, you know, these kids grow up wanting to be whalers. They see their parents and their uncles and and things like that do these jobs in the profession. 
And then they finally go do it, and they they kind of see the unromanticized version. Mm-hmm. It's almost like um, a thing I thought of as very much that pageantry of going off to war and then finally seeing what war's like. Mm-hmm. And it's very much not sexy. And for a lot of these kids, it's like they're seeing their parents, they're you know they're seeing their their dads, their uncles, their brothers very rarely. And when they do, they're seeing them get off a fully loaded whaling ship, unloading all these barrels of oil, and you know, with make, money making a bunch of money. money. Yeah. Um. So they they associate whaling with money and you know the the life that they have, and then yeah, like you said, it is probably a very jarring experience to go and say, okay, this is what it actually looks like to put in the work. This is what the the front mm-hmm. side of that looks like. Also, like dealing in this job of such a high stress job where life and limb depends on it. It's one thing if I say, hey, did you make those thirty copies I asked you to make? And you're like, oh <laughs> right. no, I forgot. But like if it's hey, did you tie this off right? Mm-hmm. And you're not sure, like, yeah, we're going to have a different conversation. Yeah. So, yeah, like, this, the stakes are probably so much higher than any of these new people are used to as well. So the plan for the Essex was to sail directly east across the Atlantic to the Azores, from there, south to the Cape Verde Islands, then catching the northeast trade winds to take them south and west back across the Atlantic to the coast of Brazil. Following the coast of South America, down around Cape Horn, Then they'd sail up the coast of Chile for a final provisioning stop before heading out into the Pacific whaling grounds. They did the thing that the bounty was too scared to do, right? Or unable to do. They wanted to do it. Unable to do, yes. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Actually, just three days out of Nantucket, the Essex encountered their first significant problem. Uh, So quoting here from Owen Chase's narrative. We distinctly saw the approach of the gust but miscalculated altogether as to the strength and violence of it. It struck the ship about three points off the weather quarter. At the moment that the man at the helm was in the act of putting her away to run before it. In an instant, she was knocked down with her spar in the water, and before hardly a moment of time was allowed for reflection, she gradually came to the wind and righted. So to read Chase's narrative, that sounds scary, but not that serious. He describes it as happening mm-hmm. very, very quickly. He doesn't really linger on this. Philbrick plays it up a little bit more in, in the heart of the sea. And the film takes that even further. This is like a major serious thing in the movie. There's a good bit of drama also between, you know, the, the quote inexperienced Captain Pollard and the knowledgeable Chase in which, you know, Chase is telling him there's a storm. We need to, you know, take action accordingly. And Pollard just flatly refuses. He says, no, we need to put these boys through like their first real good storm. So he's just going to keep the sails deployed the way they are. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem to have happened. It's not mentioned by Owen Chase. Yeah, I feel like Chase would have mentioned that if if he could have. And again, you can see Chase doesn't say the captain misjudged this. He says we misjudged this. He, He doesn't really separate himself at all here. Yeah, the fact that he doesn't linger on it too long makes me think that it was just something that happened more than anything. The Essex did take some serious damage from this. Uh, several of her sails were damaged beyond usefulness. The cookhouse was destroyed. And the two port whaleboats had been ripped out of the davits and lost. Uh, while the stern whaleboat, the spare whaleboat, was crushed. So that left only two operable whaleboats. Um, and three was really considered the bare minimum that you needed for mm-hmm. effective whaling. I guess it should be noted, like, there's no concern about lack of lifeboats. This is 100% lack of boats to murder whales. Absolutely. It's like, you can't do your job. Like, why are we out here if we don't, if we, if we don't have the tools that we need? 
Mm-hmm. And again, they're only three days out of Nantucket. So like there's a legitimate conversation that they have about should we just turn around? Because, you know, if we can't reliably get boats, we're not going to get any whales. And I feel like that is where the young captain thing comes in of him being like, absolutely not. We're absolutely not turning around. And you'd have to think for Chase also of he needs he needs a good result on this voyage uh, if he wants to get his captaincy. Well, and not to mention, I guess, like you've already put forth quite a bit of effort that you're about to not get paid for if you did go back right now. Yeah. So after some discussion on the best course of action, Essex continued on to the Azores, hoping to reprovision and get some replacement boats. They didn't find those in the Azores, but after reaching the Cape Verde Islands, they were actually able to get one spare boat off of another whale ship that was wrecked on the island of Boa Vista. Uh, This was the Archimedes sailing out of New York. So with some repairs to the spare boats, that gave the Essex a total of four whale boats to conduct her hunting. They traded some beans that they had with them for pork, and the Essex prepared to sail again. Gonna wish they had those beans. After leaving the Cape Verdes and crossing the equator, the men of the Essex sighted their first whale of the voyage off the coast of Brazil. Uh, by this point, it's October, and with a whale sighted, the whale boats were deployed, and the hunt could officially begin. Think about how boring it's probably been up to this point mm-hmm. of just day after day, and like you don't see one until you get to Brazil. So on the Essex, one boat was commanded by Captain Pollard, one by Owen Chase, and the last by second mate Matthew Joy. Each officer selected the crew for his whaleboat, with right of first choice going in order of rank. I think this was just done where the captain chose all of his guys, and then the first mate, and then second mate. Yeah, I feel like they weren't concerned about it being fair. In any I don't way. think it was like a snake draft in fantasy football. <laughs> so this resulted in second mate Joy being the only boat with no Nantucketers aboard. I mean, I guess that's one of those things where like, that's how you put your time in to become a captain as you put up with stuff like that and mm-hmm. work your way up through the ranks. So with each officer choosing five men for their boats, that left three men to stay aboard the ship to keep watch while the hunt was underway. Do you think... So, if you, you can't put your three least responsible people in that role. <laughs> you gotta balance it out. Yeah, like, you need someone back there on the boat that, like, kind of knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, like, the worst guy has to be with the second mate, is what I'm getting at, You'd I You'd have guess. to think so. Well, and, and for some of the people on the boats, really, their only responsibility is rowing. So you'd have to think maybe that's maybe that's the guy you don't really trust. Maybe you just make him the rower. He doesn't really have to do anything independently. So in any reading about the whaling ships, uh, these are the moments that are really the most vividly described. But I think Philbrick sums it up really well, talking about the roles of each man in the boat. At this early stage in the attack, the mate or captain stood at the steering oar in the stern of the whaleboat, while the boat steer man the forwardmost or harpooner's oar. After the boat steer was the bow oarsman, usually the most experienced foremast hand in the boat. Next was the midships oarman, who worked the longest and heaviest of the lateral oars, up to 18 feet long and 45 pounds. Next was the tub oarsman. He managed the two tubs of whale line. It was his job to wet the line with a small bucket-like container called a piggin once the whale was harpooned. The wetting prevented the line from burning from the friction as it ran out around the loggerhead. Aft of the tub oarsman was the after oarsman. He was usually the lightest of the crew, 
and it was his job to make sure that the whale line didn't get tangled as it was hauled back into the boat. Also something there, if you're that last oarsman, you're also the person who's right in front of the captain or the mate. So anyone who's had a job where your manager is, you know, watching you (laughs) do the job knows that that's there's a certain level of, you know, you don't really envy that person either. And in this case, his job is literally to micromanage you. Yeah, like, and you know, he's going to be yelling. He's going to not have a lot of patience here because this is this is the key moments in the hunt. I think it's interesting. You know, anytime you see things like this, where there's a variety of different tasks, and really the success depends on everyone doing it properly. You can imagine how hard it would be to be the second mate in that third boat, where guys are all doing this for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like that, that would not be pleasant. And. Uh, to varying extents, a mistake at any of these positions could kill one or multiple people. And really, through all this, the thing is, you know, all these guys rowing as they're approaching the whale, the only person who can see where they're going is the officer who's at the stern of the boat. So once the whale's been harpooned, the harpoon's not supposed to kill the whale. Uh, it just serves as a way to attach the boat to the whale as the whale hopefully eventually wears itself out. Yeah, I was surprised to learn about that too, is that like you're essentially playing a game of trying to make the whale like exhaust itself to death. Mm-hmm. This is where we get the term Nantucket sleigh ride. <laughs> Give her the old... And, and this reflects the massive speeds that could be reached in these moments after the whale has been harpooned and it's attempting to run. It's probably the fastest some of these people moved in their life. Oh, yeah, for sure. The boat rocked from side to side and bounced up and down as the whale dragged it along at speeds that would have left the fleetest naval frigate wallowing in its wake. When it came to sheer velocity over the water, a Nantucketer pinned to the flank of a whale that was pulling him miles and miles from a whale ship that was already hundreds of miles from land was the fastest seaman in the world, traveling at 15, and some claimed as many as 20, bone-jarring knots. So Richard Ellis's book, The Great Sperm Whale, also discusses the topic of the speed at which sperm whales travel, and provides a comparison to normal swimming speed. The speed when making a passage has been estimated at three or four knots, and when alarmed, they can double this. Under extreme duress, that is, when harpooned, the sperm whale has been recorded to achieve speeds of 10 to 15 miles per hour. So yeah, anywhere in that 15, 20 mile an hour range is going to be terrifying for this is your first time out there doing this. You're on this relatively small little boat and there's this enormous sea monster dragging you (laughs) at, you know, faster than you've, you've ever gone before. If a whale took them too far from the ship or to me, more terrifyingly, started to dive too deep, (laughs) uh, the line could be cut with a hatchet. So they'd keep track of how much line is left. uh, How much time do we have? Do we need to cut this? Yeah, that's definitely something I was wondering uh, getting into this is like, what if it just tries to ocean gate you? Like, what if it just goes? And like, so then imagine being the guy that has to make that choice, though. You have to decide between cutting loose and losing the money or Mm -hmm. staying attached and potentially losing your life. And like, there's going to be unhappy people with you either way. And I assume this is a decision that would be made by the mate or the, the captain being on board because yeah. it's right there in front of him. Also, as mentioned in that quote that we just read, not just the whale, the line itself 
mm-hmm. on the harpoon was a danger due to the speed that it's running out as the whale tries to escape. This rope could cause burns. Obviously, if if you touch it, it's it's going to hurt or even start a fire if it's not kept dampened. Um, that was, you know, one person's responsibility. And of course, if it tangles around someone, it's going to drag them into the ocean. Yeah, that would be terrifying. Yeah, there's there's a lot of dangers on this that don't come directly from the whale. Once the whale was exhausted, the killing lance would be used to stab the whale until it was dead. This lance had a petal-shaped blade, and it usually required multiple attempts before the whale died. So a lot of digging around, a lot of really getting in there, trying to hit just the right spot. It sounds awful. <laughs> it does. And of course, like the whale's probably not sitting still while you're doing this. Right. Uh, these are dangerous moments. And the death of the whale was typically indicated by a bloody red mist being expelled from the blowhole, uh, spurring cheers of chimneys of fire. Once dead, the whale would be taken back to the ship for processing. I would imagine even the most, like, if any part of you still feeling the romance of this after all the other stuff that's already happened, this is the final spot where it's like, all right, <laughs> there's nothing glamorous about what we're doing. You, you could also imagine this being one of those moments where if you're a veteran whaler, mm-hmm. you, these are probably the moments that you revel in, just like the feeling of, yeah, like we did it. And then it's like well, seeing all of like the the new people just like shocked and horrified mm-hmm. at this blood spray that's covering you after killing this 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 sea beast. Yeah, it definitely has like a platoon vibe almost <laughs> of like, you had your first contact with the enemy and you like maybe you shot someone for the first time and now now like you're not the same like you either are going to embrace it or you're going to know this isn't for you really mm-hmm. quick so on this occasion back to the essex here chase's boat got to the whale first however just at the moment when novice boat steerer benjamin lawrence is about to loose his harpoon another whale surfaces just beneath their boat wrecking it entirely and tossing them all into the water So Thomas Nickerson, who was on this boat, uh, would comment. I presume the monster was as much frightened as ourselves, for he disappeared almost instantly after a slight flourish of his huge tail. So right away on their first hunt, this inexperienced crew quickly get an education in how quickly things can go wrong. They're just in the right spot. They're about to throw the harpoon and unexpectedly, everything falls apart. And also how dangerous the whales could be even before they've been stabbed Mm -hmm. with a sharp harpoon. Even when the whale's not at least obviously trying to cause any damage, they can wreck your boat and put you all in the water. A few days later, the Essex had her first successful hunt. And Philbrick points out that for Thomas Nickerson, and I think probably for a few others on board, this was the first time seeing a large, warm-blooded animal killed. Philbrick cites Enoch Cloud, who's not a member of the Essex, but he's someone who served as a green hand on a whale ship at the age of 18. It is painful to witness the death of the smallest of God's created beings. Much more, one in which life is vigorously maintained as the whale. And when I saw this, the largest and most terrible of all created animals, bleeding, quivering, dying a victim to the cunning of man, my feelings were indeed peculiar. So I think in that quote, you see kind of a layman's description of what we might talk about today as recognizing the intelligence of this animal. Mm-hmm. And he talks about 
life being vigorously maintained in this animal. And yeah, you get a sense that a lot of these whalers do recognize that there's something different and something special about the sperm whale, not just due to its size, but due to its intelligence. The the idea that it Mm -hmm. in some ways seems to operate kind of how a human would. Which, yeah, I mean, that's going to make it a lot harder to kill uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the closer kinship you feel to this animal. That's why you see a complete separation of like the food supply chain from any identification of it as being an actual animal because they don't want you to think about it, which, yeah, I get it. <laughs> so with that first whale brought back to the Essex, they could do their first processing. Processing these whales, or the, the term typically used is trying out the whale. That's why we use the term try works when we were talking about boiling mm. these things down. This would have been a pretty horrendously off-putting process, especially for a first-timer. I think to an extent it seems like something you you might never get totally accustomed to. Well, and like imagine this is your first time and like you've just witnessed this bloodbath in the water and now it's like and it gets worse. Now we're going to rip it apart and boil it. Although by 1819 this is a pretty well-established practice. It still did have its dangers, even well after the time we're discussing. This is never something that gets 100% safe. I feel like every job is ex- exceptionally dangerous. So when you have to single out a job as being more dangerous, then like, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. So quoting from Mary Malloy, uh, writing in Whaleman's perceptions of the, quote, high and mighty business of whaling. Manning the Triworks was the worst and most degrading part of the whaleman's job. Analogous to the butcher's job ashore, but more dangerous. Captain Robert Brown of the Emerald reported on 30 December 1840 that crewman Joseph Jackson fell into a pot of boiling whale oil and lived for 12 painful hours before his death. And it was not unknown for tripods to explode as they did aboard the Bowditch on 29 October, 1837. So that quote hits on something you had mentioned before about how there's a lot of dangerous jobs here, but only some of them come with glory. If you're the guy Mm -hmm. who spears the whale, you're the guy who harpoons the whale, the guy who kills the whale, there's a level of glory in that. You know, those are the stories people tell. Those are the stories that, you know, kids back on Nantucket are uh, hearing and telling each other that makes them want to be whalers. No one's telling stories about the people working the tripods. That's why people don't know that this is a huge part of the process. She mentions that being the most degrading part of the whaleman's job. So yeah, not only is it dangerous and, and dirty and disgusting, there's no you know personal glory in it. Mm-hmm. No one cares that you dropped a strip of blubber into a pot. So first, the whale would be dragged to the starboard side of the ship and secured into place. Uh, And then the cutting stages were lowered. These are basically just small wooden platforms that drop down to give you some space to cut the whale as it's in the water. Using the ship's windlass, strips of the outer blubber would be peeled off in pieces up to 20 feet long. These are called blanket pieces. A nice warm blubber blanket. (laughs) Blanket pieces are dropped into the blubber room to be cut up into smaller pieces. With the blubber removed, the head of the whale was then cut off. This is about a third of the whale's total length, because this is where the good stuff is. Yeah, we got to scrape those bulls or those uh, whale skulls. So the heads hauled up on deck where a hole would be cut for removing the precious spermaceti from the case. I do think it's funny. I was reflecting on this. It's just very funny. Like spermaceti is kind of like the the scientific name for this material. 
the sperma part is just sperm and the seti part is whale. So really they're just calling this whale c- is is what they're talking about here. So a mature bull sperm whale might have as much as 10 barrels of spermaceti in the case, case being the the part of the head where this is. And it might produce 100 barrels of oil from the blubber. These are the upward extremes. Most of the whales aren't, you know, close to this, uh, but this is kind of the maximum you could expect from a very large whale. In hopes of coming across ambergris, the whale's innards would be probed with a lance. Fortunately, you didn't have to crawl inside to find that necessarily. What an awful but also like potentially rewarding job. Like the whole time you have to be like $200, (laughs) $200 or whatever equivalent uh, you might expect from the ambergris. So once the blubber, spermaceti and ambergris had been removed, the rest of the whale's corpse was discarded. And that's that's kind of the end of the process. <laughs> on to the next one. The Essex reached Cape Horn on November 25th, where they experienced some of the rough weather that the region is known for. It took them about a month to round the Horn and reach St. Mary's Island on the Chilean coast. So after a resupply stop at favorite spot of the show, Talcahuano, <laughs> the Essex was able to get down to business, producing around 450 barrels of oil in a span of two months. Uh, So they're killing a whale about every five days. It's a lot of whale killing. Essex continued on her business through the spring and the summer. In September, Captain Pollard decides to put in at the village of Atacames before heading out to the newly discovered offshore whaling ground. So this is something that had been, uh, again, this was a very recent discovery and, and something that they had just learned about. And this was actually an interesting story here. Just about two years earlier, a captain named George Washington Gardner of the whale ship Globe. And this mm-hmm. is a few years before the famous Globe mutiny. He had sailed out further into the Pacific than was standard at the time, and he had discovered this treasure trove of sperm whales. He returns to Nantucket in May of 1820 with 2,000 barrels of oil. Um, so mm. word of this hunting ground spreads. More and more people start to hear about it and say, we've got to get out there too. He's like the Lansford Hastings of uh nantucket a little bit those new routes but there's actual whales here (laughs) so in september captain pollard decides to put in at the village of atacames before heading out to these new hunting grounds and it's here that the crew loses its first member not to a whale or to disease but to desertion henry dewitt jumped ship in atacames leaving the crew a man short for all the actions that we just talked about with the hunting and processing This was especially problematic during the hunting process, because this is only going to leave two men behind on the ship. Yeah, you're starting to get pretty thin in your crew here. The Essex then made for the Galapagos, killing and processing two whales on the way. Here they loaded up on tortoises for food. This is always my least favorite part of reading anything about this time period. I hate hearing about the tortoises. The tortoises could be kept alive with minimal or basically no food or water, and they provided good meat during the voyage. So they would just like stack these things in the hold, still alive, and then just kill them as needed. I just I hate thinking about the poor tortoises in these in these cramped holds, not being fed or given water. But this was standard practice, and the tortoise meat was apparently really good. Yeah, I, I did find that part a little weird of like, yeah, they just let them roam around till it was time to like dome one and eat it so this finally brings us to the 20th of november 1820 and what i guess we can finally call the incident the essex was a thousand miles west of the galapagos having been at sea for about a month 
when she came across a shoal of whales. Whale boats were deployed, uh, though with a little shuffling of personnel. In Chase's account, he describes throwing the harpoon himself, which is not really the standard setup for this. Mm -hmm. So presumably, he wasn't satisfied with boat steerer slash harpooner Benjamin Lawrence's performance up to this point. Interesting. This would have been like a, I don't know if it's quite to the level of drastic, but this would have been a very significant move being done. Basically, the boss seeing someone can't do the job after repeated instructions and just says, here, let me do it. I'll, I'll do it. I'll show you how it's done. So yeah, this is kind of a big deal uh, in, a, in a culture that is so much about pride and the experiences that you have in whaling to be removed from this position and replaced you know, by, by the mate is, is kind of a big deal. Well, yeah, I mean, and like everyone sees it. So like, yeah, like there's really no saving face with the crew either. Yeah. So the first attempt was unsuccessful as after being harpooned, the targeted whale actually managed to smash a hole in the boat with his tail. Not a happy whale. So this forced Chase and his men back to the Essex while bailing water and attempting to plug the hole. So here was an instance where the line did have to be cut because they knew that they did not want to go on this sleigh ride with a hole in their boat. (laughs) It'd be very short. So once back on the Essex, Chase begins to repair the damaged boat, which he assesses as requiring a piece of canvas to be nailed across the breach. And, you know, he thinks this is going to be a lot quicker than trying to deploy the spare boat. That's going to be a bit more time consuming. And it's at this point when he's doing maintenance that our incident possibly begins. According to Chase's account, he was in the process of nailing the canvas to the boat when he spied a very large whale, which he estimated at 85 feet in length. He broke water about 20 rods off our weather bow and was lying quietly with his head in a direction for the ship. He spouted two or three times and then disappeared. In less than two or three seconds, he came up again, about the length of the ship off, and made directly for us, at the rate of about three knots. His appearance and attitude gave us at first no alarm. But while I stood watching his movements, and observing him but a ship's length off, coming down for us with great celerity, I involuntarily ordered the boy at the helm to put it hard up, intending to sheer off and avoid him. The words were scarcely out of my mouth before he came down upon us with full speed and struck the ship with his head, just forward of our four chains. He gave us such an appalling and tremendous jar as nearly threw us all on our faces. So Chase describes a span of minutes where the men are are basically speechless. This was unheard of behavior for a whale. Smashing whale boats was one thing, you know, either on purpose or by accident, but attacking the actual whale ship, quote unquote, unprovoked, this was new and it was absolutely terrifying from from a sperm whale. Not even something that would have been on the list of possible risks of whaling. Um, you know, you're on the ship, you're presumably safe. You're in the middle of the ocean, you're not going to hit a rock or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like not really knowing exactly how to process this. And it appears that the men weren't the only ones who were taken aback by this. Chase describes the whale just after the impact, saying that he passed under the ship, grazing her keel as he went along, came up alongside of her to leeward, and lay on top of the water. 
apparently stunned with the violence of the blow for the space of a minute. He then suddenly started off in the direction to leeward. So Chase recognizes immediately the ship has likely been stove and orders the pumps started while also ordering for the boats out hunting to be signaled back to the ship. Chase then notices the whale again. Apparently in convulsions on top of the water, about 100 rods to leeward, he was enveloped in the foam of the sea that his continual and violent thrashing about in the water had created around him. And I could distinctly see him smite his jaws together as if distracted with rage and fury. So the movement of the jaws is significant because this tends to be how whales attack both of the whale boats and each other. It's typically done with the jaws rather than the head. So the Essex begins to settle lower into the water. And at this point, Chase is already thinking of readying the two available whale boats and abandoning ship. But the whale's not finished with the Essex just yet. <laughs> Chase describes a second attack with the whale striking the Essex again directly under the cat head. So where the anchor uh, is hung, completely crushing the bow of the ship. And this is where the whale exits the story. Uh, at least, you know, in Chase's narrative, the film version of In the Heart of the Sea plays up this this duel a little bit more. There's there's a little bit more. We, we do see the whale again. Mm -hmm. But now Chase is desperate to get what he can get into the boats before the ship sinks under them. And seeing the signals from the ship and likely noticing that their ship is sinking, the whale boats return to the scene of the disaster. And Chase describes the now famous exchange upon the return of Captain Pollard's boat. He stopped about a boat's length off, but had no power to utter a single syllable. He was so completely overpowered with the spectacle before him that he sat down in his boat, pale and speechless. I could scarcely recognize his countenance. He appeared to be so much altered, awed, and overcome with the impression of his feelings and the dreadful reality that lay before him. He was in short time, however, enabled to address the inquiry to me. My God, Mr. Chase, what is the matter? I answered, we have been stove by a whale. So here's where we'll leave the men of the Essex for now. Uh, we'll pick up their story in part three because there's a lot more to it. <laughs> and actually, in Owen Chase's account, this only gets us to about page 13. Wow. I want to say like 60 or 70. Um, so a, a relatively small amount is spent up to this because there's there's so much more to the story of the Essex. But before we leave for the week, uh, let's reflect a little bit on what just happened uh, to the Essex uh, with the benefit of almost two additional centuries of research on the sperm whale. So in his own narrative, Chase indicates a belief in at least some level of the whale being able to understand the whale ship's function and mm -hmm. undertake this calculated retribution. Every fact seemed to warrant me in concluding that it was anything but chance which directed his operations. He made two attacks upon the ship, at a short interval between them, both of which, according to their direction, were calculated to do us the most injury. His aspect was most horrible, and such as indicated resentment and fury. He came directly from the shoal which we had just entered, and in which we had struck three of his companions, as if fired with revenge for their sufferings. So a couple things here. You know, he's a whaler. 
He's he's done this many times before. He knows what normal whale behavior is in these situations and what isn't. And this clearly strikes him as out of the ordinary. So while we know now that cetaceans are among the most intelligent animals on Earth, there are some other possible explanations that have been suggested for what this was. You know, if not a quote unquote attack, what was this? We know that sperm whales have extremely highly developed brains for processing sound and producing sound. They use echolocation, like dolphins, to locate prey and also to make a range of noises. Um, And a lot of these are audible to the human ear. Female noises are usually described as clicks, sounding a bit like Morse code. Males make a slower, louder noise that's described as a clang. And it's thought to have a role in announcing themselves to both potential mates and rival males. So the possibility has been proposed that this whale heard Chase hammering on that whaleboat through the water (laughs) and took it for another whale. This loud, consistent hammering, it might have sounded similar to another bull close by, which is something that this whale is going to want to deal with, probably. If it sounds far-fetched, the opposite uh, has been, there is some testimony to the opposite, the inverse situation. Crew aboard whalers reported that being below decks on a whaler, they, they nicknamed this whale the carpenter fish because of these hammering noises that they could hear inside the ship when whales are close by. Interesting. So, you know, if the whale sounds like hammering to a human, maybe the opposite is true also. Hmm. It would also explain whales seeming frustration after the first impact and then coming back for another go. If it thinks it's going to hit another whale and it runs into this solid mass of wood, it's probably going to be really confused for a second. Mm -hmm. So as interesting as that is. Researchers also have proposed that the collision, at least the first one, was just an accident. Chase does describe the whale traveling at its normal cruising speed of about three knots. At least on the surface, it doesn't seem to fit the narrative if the whale thought it was, you know, entering battle with another bull. Mm -hmm. It's not behaving aggressively in terms of speed that first time. It's, of course, a much better story. If the whale's taking revenge, that's what gets us ultimately the novel Moby Dick. But also, it's, you know, it's really common for us to transplant human emotions onto animals and try to match them up one to one. Yeah, that's always a hard thing to do because like, it's hard enough to do with a domestic dog or cat, much less a wild whale. Exactly. And I think a great recent example of this is this past summer, the string of, you know, orca, quote, attacks on boats. Mm-hmm. I think at least three boats were damaged enough to actually sink. Uh, These were mostly yachts, you know, know, smaller sailing boats. The orcas that were participating in these attacks were mostly juvenile orcas, and they mostly went after the rudders on those vessels. Now, to us, as, you know, scheming, conniving humans, that makes total sense. Of course, you want to disable the rudder because that cripples the ship. They're very smart. They know exactly where to attack. When, in fact, to a young orca, it might just be something that looks fun to play with. Right. You've got this kind of undifferentiated hull of the ship, and then you have this thing sticking off the back that's moving back and forth, just like a cat would want to play with that. That looks like something fun that that I want to check out. And, you know, also this is, you know, the fact that they're mostly juvenile orcas doing this. If this was actually, you know, a defense mechanism, you'd have to think that the males, the, the adult males would get involved with this too. Right. 
So in the case of the Essex, the whale's described as being about 85 feet in length, possibly an exaggeration based on modern measurements. Male sperm whales get up to about 60 feet in length. It could also be an example of how overall whale size was reduced by centuries of hunting. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. That like maybe we killed the big ones. Well, yeah, the large ones are more desirable. They give you more oil, more spermaceti. Those are going to be the the ones that attract the most attention. Um, so, I mean, to an extent, it it might make sense. Maybe there was an eighty five foot sperm whale. The sperm whale is very hard to study. Yeah, I can imagine where it lives and how it behaves. So, yeah, we we do have kind of an incomplete picture of this animal, especially two hundred years ago. So regardless, Chase knew that this was a really, really large and so also very old whale. It is within possibility that this whale had the experience to know what the Essex was and acted accordingly. We talked about being careful with, you know, human emotions, but whales are still very intelligent. Um, Mm -hmm. The cetaceans are phenomenally intelligent. Yeah, I mean, if it's been through this process before and and knows there's a threat, yeah, it's probably going to try to handle it. Yeah, if... Even if only knowing that some of its some of its school has been injured in the area, there's this strange thing here. I'm just going to lash out and attack this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's kind of any anything along that spectrum is is within possibility. We will obviously never know. We can't get the whale in for an interview. That whale woke up and listened to Break Stuff by Limp Bizkit <laughs> and had a monster and went about his day. So, yeah, I think that's a good place to end it for this second part. Uh, we're ending with the the whale ship Essex in very dire straits and in the next uh the the last of the main sequence we will talk about uh how the men of the essex survive some of them uh to ultimately make it back home so we'll be back next week with that conclusion and until then uh take care everyone stepping out of his mild quaker skin to become a vociferous marionette. Martinet. Martin Martinet. I think a marionette would be the opposite. <laughs> that would be. Once the whale's been harpooned, the whale's not supposed to kill the whale. Uh, it just serves as a way to keep the boat close as the whale. Go, go back. I think you said the whale's not supposed to kill the whale. The whale's not supposed to kill the whale. <laughs> <laughs>